Today's scripture portion is taken from Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, Christ City, uh, my name is Brent. Uh, if you've not yet had the chance to meet me, I'd love to meet you afterwards. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, I just It's my joy this morning to be able to bring you this word from Psalm 23, a word that I've been meditating on and thinking about uh, all week that I've been deeply needing all week. So maybe you also need it this morning. Well, last week we looked at Psalm 1, and we saw in Psalm 1 that the psalmist speaks to human beings who are just like us. Human beings that struggle so often to navigate through life, to know which way to turn and which way to go and what actually will lead us to the flourishing and and the, the good life that we long for and that we hunger for as human beings. And in our confusion, we saw in Psalm 1 last week that the psalmist declares the word of God is a trustworthy guide. That we can build our life, the edifice, the whole, the, the entirety of our life on the words of God for us in scripture, that they will direct us to the happiness of a life well lived. It's a certain guide. But I think Psalm 1 in some ways leaves us with a bit of a question. I think the question is this. Okay, that's well and good. That's great. But is God just a trustworthy GPS? See, like an impersonal robot like Siri. Because, you know, we all navigate life in our vehicles and we follow our GPS and we have these things talk to us. And uh, maybe it's Siri, maybe it's the, the voice whatever for Google Maps. I'm not sure if she has a name or he has a name. And I think we wonder sometimes, is God like that? Kind of like an algorithm that's been des- designed to, to work for billions of people at the same time, but a little bit impersonally. Or is he intimately present with me in my car? Is he with me in the journey that I'm going through? Not just as a true guide that's distant, one that's close at hand. One who is my guide. Well, if Psalm 1 was all about the wisdom of how life works best according to the word of God, I think Psalm 23 kind of adds to Psalm 1 and it deepens and personalizes that wisdom and declares that the God of the Bible doesn't just give instructions about where to go. He is present with you. Christ City, he cares for you. And he is incredibly good. And I think that makes all the difference for us in our lives. See, in Psalm 23, the ancient King David, he shares his own testimony to the trials and difficulties that he's gone through in his life, his testimony of God's goodness. And he proclaims his care and his presence to us that we would know and be comforted by them through two beloved ancient images. The ancient image of the shepherd and the ancient image of the host. And those are our two points this morning. So if you thought there's three points, I'm sorry, this is the, the one of the, the three times a year when we have two points instead of three. 
And our two points are these, God is our shepherd and God is our host. So here's my question as we come to the text. Are you anxious this morning? Are you suffering? Are you weighed down by life, by the burdens that you're going through? Are you discouraged? Are you lonely and hurting? You see, this morning, God has a lot more than just directions for you in his word. He wants to give you himself. Let's turn to him and let's see what he has to give us of himself in Psalm 23. Look at verse 1 in our first point. God is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It's just one statement and a conclusion. It's a testimony of this ancient King David. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. He declares that truth, and I think we can supply a therefore. If the Lord is my shepherd, David says, I shall not want. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, my bank account is full. My health is good. My circumstances are free from suffering. Therefore, I shall not want. He says one thing. Simply, the Lord is my shepherd. And if that and that alone is true, then I shall not want. And that's pretty striking for us when we consider the context of Psalm 23. As those of us that might be familiar with the Psalms or with the Bible or with this ancient King David, uh, the author of this Psalm, we might have images in our minds of, of ancient King David writing this and sitting comfortably on a throne in his palace on a summer day. You know, the wind's blowing gently through his, his open concept living room and he's sipping a fine beverage and he's thinking, the Lord is my shepherd. All is well, I shall not want. But I don't think Psalm 23 is meant to be read that way at all. First of all, it occurs in the first book of the Psalms. And if you don't know this, the Psalms themselves, one of the books of the Bible, is divided up into five different books. And book one is largely structured around Psalms of David that are about the first part of his life, which was full of suffering, full of distress and hardship. Let me just tell you a little bit about David. He'd been anointed to be king when he was a little boy, when he was quite young, by the prophet Samuel. But he was not yet king, even though he had this great faith in God. And in the meantime, he had this other king who he was submitting to and setting this wonderful principle of submission to, to leadership and to authority in his life. But King Saul, whom, whom he submitted to, was vindictive, was jealous, would sometimes be, say, be saying things like, David, I love you deeply come into my palace and then he'd turn the next moment and try to throw a spear at him. He would chase David through the wilderness, driving him out, trying to destroy him. And David was patient. He put his hope not in his circumstances, but in the Lord who is my shepherd. I will trust in him. 
And in that light, I think when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, it's not the throwaway statement of someone who's just dropping a platitude when times are good. It's not what it is. It's a decision of the will to put one's faith in the Lord and the God of the Bible. It's a decision of the will to remember who my shepherd is. To remember that the Lord is present with me in my distress. And if the Lord is your shepherd, that is a good thing, Christ City. Because the Lord is incomparably good and gracious and loving and powerful. He doesn't just have good sentiment towards you, but unable to actually affect good in your life. He has all power in heaven and earth to accomplish his good purposes. And the Bible, whenever you see that word, the Lord, see capitalized L-O-R-D, you need to know something about it. It translates the name of God, the Hebrew name of God that he revealed to his people. So whenever you see L-O-R-D capitalized like that, it's referring to the name of the God of the Bible as he revealed himself to the people of Israel. And if you're wondering why it says Lord instead of Yahweh, the name that God revealed, it's this. Uh, At the time of Jesus, people were so concerned about not misusing God's name that they actually decided not to say God's name at all. And whenever they encountered this word Yahweh in scripture, they'd say Adonai instead. And Adonai means Lord. So our English translators kind of carry that tradition on even still today so that when they see Yahweh in the Hebrew, they translate it, they put L-O-R-D. So we know what it is, but it still says Lord. And significant for us to know that Lord means Yahweh. Because Yahweh is the God who revealed himself to Israel. What did he do? Who is he? Well, he's the God who revealed himself to the first parents of the people of Israel, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He's a God who made promises to bless this ancient people. And as he blessed them to say, I'm going to bless you for a purpose, so that you would become a blessing, not just here in this one place, but that you'd be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth as you live in relationship with me and follow my good laws for you. This is a God who then, as his people encountered difficulty and were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, became a great nation there. The God who rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. The God who the scriptures says heard the cries and saw the tears of his people in slavery and did something about it. This is a God who then led this people to the promised land. And then when David looks back at all that Yahweh had done for him and his people, he's awed by God. He's just brought to his knees in worship and thanksgiving at the generosity of this God. The people like him who he knew so often turned away from God. And yet God was gracious and forgiving and compassionate. Look at what David says in a different psalm about this God. He declares and praises Yahweh in Psalm 103, verses 6 to 14. He says this, The Lord, Yahweh, he works righteousness and he works justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. 
The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Neither does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Who is Yahweh? Well, he's like this. As a father shows compassion to his children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. And he remembers that we're dust. David says all of this so confident in who Yahweh is. Based on what Yahweh has revealed about himself in scripture. And on that basis, he says, this God, Yahweh of the Bible, is my shepherd. Therefore, I shall not want. I'm I'm wondering this morning, how quickly is it that you lose perspective when you encounter suffering in your life? How long does it take when you are in distress before you start to just lose all perspective of any kind. I hate to admit it, but honestly, for me, it's pretty short. It doesn't take very long. And I'm speaking from experience this last week for a number of different reasons. I've been really anxious. A bunch of things have been going on and it's produced fears and anxieties in me. And what happens for me in those moments is it's like I start to view life through distorted Uh, prescription or distorted lenses in my glasses, right? And the little things are warped out of perspective and they become enormous. And then the big things that I should be holding on to remembering, somehow they evaporate and and they're lost in the margin of my vision. I forget them entirely. It's been a little bit of a bumpy ride this week. And I know, Christ City, I know that you go through the same stuff. I know that in your life, it's the same way. I know that when you go through anxiety and hardship, you lose perspective too. And the question for you is this, I think. In those moments, how do you gain that perspective back that you lost? Where where do you churn? Or to use another analogy, in the rushing river of life, when the current is strong, What rock do you sink your feet down onto in the waters so you can stand? So you're not carried away by the rushing waters. I was reminded of this yesterday because I was swimming in a swift river current and I lost my wedding ring. It's never fallen off my, my hand for a dozen years and it fell off in the current. I was so disappointed by that. That's totally on the, on the other side. Uh, didn't mean to, didn't mean to share that, but here, here I did. But in, that, in those moments, right, the, the river's swift, the, the anxiety's there, the, the troubles come. What do we do? Well, the world says to us a few different things. The world says to us, well, well trust your positive thoughts. Right, you need to focus in on, on a reality, essentially, of your creation. So repeat phrases to yourself. I am beautiful. 
I am potential. Today can be a good day. And phrases like these to just encourage myself with this truth of my Christian friends, I have to tell you, it doesn't work. I have a really good friend who is in, uh, has been in mental anguish for a very long time. And, and she once told me, she said, Brant, I've been the power of positive thinking the crap out of myself today and it's just not working. <laughs> I wanted to tell her and I have told her again and again, it's because you need to turn to Jesus. There's no solid ground for your feet there. The world says, on the other hand, well, okay, if you're not doing that, well, just trust your own strength. You're a strong person. It's only weak people who need things like God. The problem is that every one of us is weak. Maybe we just don't know it yet. The world says, follow your heart. Right? But the reality is, my emotions anyway, I'll just speak for myself, they're like a thick cloud. I can't see through them. And when I'm lost in them, I can't tell which way is up. You want me to follow my emotions? There's no stability for my feet there. But on the other hand, in the first verse of Psalm 23, we see something different. A rock that is sure and steadfast. We see the testimony of David who says, when all of life is in chaos, don't trust your emotion. Don't trust simply your experiences because your life has been short and you don't have enough experience to know what's right and what's wrong. Don't trust just the advice of a friend. Turn to the God of the Bible and remember who he is and what he has done. Know that the Lord is my shepherd isn't an empty platitude. It's a decision to remember who God is as revealed in his word in order to reach our feet down to the currents of life and find stability in the midst of chaos. In Christ City, here's the good news. We have far far greater reasons for encouragement and hope than even David did. And we do because we look back on a greater revelation of Yahweh than David had. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. The author of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God, this Yahweh of the Bible, he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. You see, Yahweh became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. If you want to know what Yahweh is like, the testimony of scripture is this. Look at Jesus. Look to the Jesus who came to live among us on this earth. Listen to what he says in John chapter 10, verses 11 and 14 to 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He's evoking all of the language of scripture about shepherd, about how God is shepherd and Jesus, God become flesh. God taking our humanity and added it to his divinity stands among human beings on this planet and says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd 
lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Grace City, 2,000 years ago, the Yahweh that David called his shepherd became a human being. He added our frail humanity to his divinity. He dwelt among us. And though he was God most high, exalted above all things in his deity, he entered into our suffering to save us. He wasn't like earthly leaders who are distant from us. He wasn't sinful like we are who who keep ourselves back from the pain and the suffering of humanity. Jesus was the one who went and touched those who were sick, those who had leprosy. He's the one who welcomed those who were rejected in society. He's the one who embraced sinners and forgave them. He's the one who welcomed children and showed that I am a good shepherd who loves and who cares for my sheep. And then this Jesus, he proved the goodness of who he is as a shepherd by laying down his life to save his sheep. Sinless Jesus, allowing himself to be murdered on a cross so that every straying sheep like you and I could be forgiven. So this morning, you with the guilt and the shame that you experience in your life could be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. So you could be washed clean and reconciled with God. So the Holy Spirit of God could not just be a God through through some general means, but actually take up residence in your heart. So you could be set free, Christ City, from all the things that you wish you could be free from. So Christ City, let me encourage you, as we continue reading Psalm 23 this morning, it is appropriate that you see Jesus in this psalm. This psalm is all about Jesus. How does David describe him? Look at verses 2 to 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So these verses taken as a whole, what they communicate is this perfect provision and care for us that God has for us as shepherd. And let me remind you that the shepherd's job was to, to lead his sheep to the treacherous environment of Israel to the good pasture land. Because remember, Israel, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is not like modern Ireland, right? Ireland is sheepy paradise. It's like sheepy heaven. There's no snakes there. St. Patrick drove them out a long time ago, so goes the, the old legend, right? Israel is arid. It's a desert. There are snakes. There are lions. And there's a lots of places where the sheep, if they wander out, they're going to be dead in no time at all. And a good shepherd leads you to flourishing life. Now, there's one way, though, of reading this psalm that I think we need to get out ahead of and say that's obviously wrong, and it's this. I hate to disappoint you, but let me assure you, 
Verdant pastures and quiet waters here does not mean no suffering. It's not what it means. Despite what people will tell you, some of them well-meaning, some of them are very deceptive. Verdant pasture, quiet waters does not equal no suffering in your life. But if Jesus is your shepherd, you can be sure of this, that he will lead you to good, flourishing life. See, Jesus is a perfect shepherd who doesn't just give us everything that we want. He's a faithful shepherd who gives us everything that we need. And there is a difference, isn't there? I'll be honest. I'm going to go on a limb here. Here's what I want, Christ City. I'm going to bear my soul to you. I want comfort so badly. I want wealth a lot. I want health. I want success by the metrics of my own choosing in my own life. And just throw in, I want whatever makes me feel good in the moment. (laughs) That's what I want. I want all of that. But Jesus, my shepherd, he wants my eternal happiness. You know, this past year, I've been really struck by Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7. And chapter 2, verse 7 reminds me a lot of the first few verses in Psalm 23. In that passage, Moses, the the prophet of of Israel, he's speaking to the people of Israel on their way to the promised land. And he says this, he says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the works of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you've lacked nothing. It's important to know in Deuteronomy 2.7 that this is, a time when Israel has literally just been 40 years wandering in a God-forsaken, it's not God-forsaken, in, in, a, in a dusty, dry, where the presence of God is all around, wilderness that was very difficult, that some people might call God-forsaken, but they're wrong. He said, you saw it in the verse, the 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, it's not forsaken. But you have to imagine that from their perspective, they knew exactly every single thing that they lacked on their journey. They knew it intimately and deeply. And they must have questioned the goodness of God as their shepherd. Uh, 40 years of dust, God? I know what I'm missing. Wandering around for 40 years without an apparent purpose. God, you've got to be kidding me here. But 40 years of miracle after miracle of God tenderly caring for them. 40 years of God loving them. 40 years of learning that Yahweh was the God who is with them. 40 years of learning to depend on Yahweh as a God who, like a father, picks up Israel like his son and carries him through the wilderness on his chest. Christ City Israel lacked new clothes. They lacked home ownership. They lacked decent meals. They lacked frequent vacations. They lacked expendable cash. But they lacked nothing because the Lord, their God, was with them. 
want you to hear this. The life that Jesus wants to give you is so much better than what you set your heart on. You see, we want comfort, but Jesus wants to make us holy. We want riches, but he wants us to have life to the fullest, living richly in obedience to him. We want to fill our lives with the happiness of our own choosing. But he wants to fill our hearts with the immeasurable and infinite joy of having our hearts open wide to know the greatness of his love and his care for us. You know what? David came to know the riches of God's goodness, not in the palace, but in suffering. He came to know the goodness of God in the cave. And there in those caves, he could say of Yahweh, his shepherd, in verse 3, He restores my soul. I'm wondering how many of you are weary and heavy laden this morning. And I'm wondering, what is it that you're churning to for rest? What comfort you're pursuing to give you what Jesus wants to give you? I want to ask you to to put those things aside. They can't fill the void. Come to Jesus, the good shepherd. He restores your soul. David continues in verse 3. He says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. When I look at that verse, to be honest, I think paths of righteousness sounds a bit pious. Doesn't it sound a bit pious to you? It's like, what are you talking about? Well, I think there's a simpler translation than one that actually fixes things for us and helps us to understand. Paths of righteousness can be translated the right paths, just really straightforward. Jesus is a shepherd who leads you not on some weird pious thing that we don't understand, but actually on just the right paths for our lives. It's an encouragement that we can trust him. He leads us on the right path. The point is that Jesus is a shepherd who doesn't waste the steps of his sheep on the way to verdant pasture. Christ said he won't tire you out on the journey. He's going to get you to where he wants you to go and the most efficient path that he can. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And the, the right path is backed up by the guarantee of his character. He puts his name on it. For his namesake, he leads you in the right path. Even when the path leads to the valley of the shadow of death. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, sheep don't need to fear when their shepherd is present. And Jesus is with us. Grace City, maybe that's the one thing you need to know this morning. The one takeaway. If you've put your faith in Jesus, then whatever you're going through this morning, you need to know that he is with you. 
Even though I walk the valley of the shadow of death. You know, valleys in Israel are not like the Fraser Valley. This Fraser Valley that we live in, Vancouver's at the mouth of this valley, it's enormous. We're kind of aware that we're in a valley, but we're mostly feeling like we're living in a plain sometimes. The valleys in Israel were these sharp, close-cut valleys in these raisiny hills. They're called wadis. You could walk through the wilderness and you could fall into one and not realize it was there before you'd hit the bottom. There are places where predators hid. They were dark and they were deep. There are places where thieves hung out. They were no good. But no matter how terrifying the valley, we can be confident that Jesus has not lost control as he leads us through. We can be confident that he's not gotten lost on the way and that we've ended up in this valley by mistake. We can be confident that Jesus is with us, loving and protecting us. We can be confident that Jesus is using even this path through this valley that I'm experiencing and don't like very much for good in my life. I need this encouragement a lot. I'm not sure about you this morning. I need this encouragement to know this because there's many of times in my life where I've felt like I'm walking through suffering or I'm walking through valleys that are pointless. I feel like it's just wasted steps. Come on, God. It's got to have been a better way. There's a few of the examples I'll, I'll share with you. There's, there's a time in my life when, when I got a phone call and I, I followed my, my dad after a horrific accident to the hospital as, as he flew in the helicopter and I followed behind in the car and I, I wondered what the point of it all was. I thought that when I would watch my daughter seizing when she was an infant, churning different colors and different shades of, of blue and wondering if she'd live through the seizure. I wonder what the point of the valley was when I first became a pastor here, to be honest, and COVID hit and things were hard. I was emotionally exhausted and had no idea what I was doing and you were all very gracious with me. I wondered these things when Heather miscarried our third child in December. And it's probable that, that your valleys are deeper still than mine are. But you need to know this. Just like he was for David in every situation of your life, Jesus is a faithful shepherd. And looking back now in my life, and as David shares a testimony in the psalm, I can see some of the ways that he's used the different valleys for good purposes. As he slowly peeled back my fingers and gently lifted my fingers from holding on to the things in my life that would destroy me and keep me from knowing more and more of his goodness. He wants to give me more of himself. He wants to give you more of himself too. So the first image that David gives us this morning is to show us who this wonderful God is who guides us in the image of a shepherd. And the second image that he has for us is the image of God as host of the ancient banquet, lavishing us with feasting and with celebration. So look at verses five to six and we'll have a shorter second point. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness 
and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Grace City, I have no experience with ancient Eastern hospitality, but I do know a little bit about Eastern hospitality. It's been a few wonderful moments in my life when I've been able to, to be invited into the homes of Sudanese refugees and welcomed in and, and showered with, with tea and with food in the midst of their poverty. I've been welcomed in in Eastern homes in the Arab world where though I tried, I could not get out of a meal and of the feast. See, Eastern hospitality takes no prisoners. They will, no matter what the cost, shower you in generosity and blessings. You cannot get away. The blessings extravagant. Some of you guys from the East, from the Asian East, know this as well, because in your own cultures, it's very much the same. So Christ City, know this. If you are from white Canadian culture, we suck at hospitality. We just really do. We got to learn something from, from these people out East. It's extravagant. But the banquet table that David describes here in this ancient Eastern image of hospitality is better still than anything that you've experienced or I've experienced on earth. It's meant to evoke the hospitality of the ancient king who has all the resources of his kingdom at his disposal to shower you with abundant generosity and blessing. And the king isn't a human being but the all-powerful God of the universe. The king who cries out in Isaiah 55 verses 1 to 2, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Are you thirsty, Christ City? Come, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. God is our generous host this morning. Jesus Christ is our generous host and he is pouring out blessings on us. And again, note the location of those blessings. In verse 5, David says, in the presence of my enemies. See, again, David's reminding us that when the Lord's your host, yours is a banquet that cannot be taken away from you by difficult circumstances. If God is for you, who can be against you? See, Paul talks about the radical generosity that is irregardless of circumstance in Romans 8, the generosity of God toward us in Jesus Christ. And he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to, able to what? Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus this morning, your cup isn't half full. Your cup is overflowing. Your head is anointed with oil. Your plate is full. 
not because of circumstances in your life that are difficult, but despite them. David says in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I have to be honest, Grace City, I don't say this very often, but I found this translation so underwhelming this week. See, the, the words that, that David's saying in the Hebrew language, he's saying, surely goodness and chesed, surely goodness and the steadfast love and loyalty of God, the promises of God to bless his people and to love them, not based on what they've done, not because they've earned it or somehow impressed him, said, hey, come give us some blessings, God. He's like, oh yeah, good job. You know, I'm going to give you a little bit of a reward here. But the faithfulness and the goodness of a God who guarantees his blessing on the basis of a promise that he has made. That surely goodness and the steadfast, committed, loving faithfulness of God shall follow me. I, I, that word follow disappoints me as well. I think follow me and I think of, I think of a dog following its owner through the park in Vancouver. It's kind of like limping along with this behind him. The word is a different word in Hebrew. It's a word that is used in context of military and pursuit of one's enemies to destroy them. It's a word that is a, about the, the language of a hot pursuit that I'm going to lay hold of you and grab you as you're trying to get away from me with my goodness and steadfast love and mercy. Christ said, you cannot outrun the goodness of God if you've put your hope in Jesus. Not because you've earned it or deserved it, but because of what Paul said in Ephesians 2, because God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It's a gift. It's a gift of God for you and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has promised you immeasurable riches and you cannot escape them. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Christ City, David says that the goodness of God has been pursuing him even when he's been so eager to get away from the goodness of God. Even when he's been the foolish sheep who's stuck headfirst on the hole in the ancient wilderness even when he's been so insistent that I'm going to find a banquet out in the dusty wilderness and comes up dry and hungry. And can we be honest for a minute, Christ City? We all try to escape the goodness of God as well. Each of us do the same thing. We turn away from the feast that he's prepared for us and try to satisfy ourselves in a feast of our own choosing. But you cannot outrun Jesus. Though you sin, though you doubt, though you are faithless, though you are hopeless, 
Though you are weak this morning and tired and you can't seem to get a handle on your emotions. Though you are afraid. If you put your trust in Jesus to save you, you cannot and you will not outrun his generosity as host. He will find you. He will carry you to his table and he will satisfy you with rich food. He will welcome you forever home. Home with him. Look at verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And many years later, the, uh, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, he picks this up and he uses this to talk about the way that we will eternally one day be home with Jesus in a world without sin or suffering. He says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So are you weary? Are you suffering? Are you burdened by guilt? By shame? Are you weak in faith? Are you this morning deep in sin? Come to Jesus. He's the good shepherd. He's a generous host. He will forgive you. He will restore your soul. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we just ask that you would strengthen us now by your spirit to put our hope in you, to turn away from the things that cannot satisfy and to be satisfied deeply and richly by your spirit through Jesus Christ. Amen.